think. No, just joking. It's all right. I know where I sit. It's all right. More practice. All right, but this week, the conquering king returns, right? This is what we are all waiting for. This is what the world is waiting for, right? So I have a picture of General Eisenhower here. He's talking to men from the 101st Airborne. This is on June 5th, right? This is the day before D-Day, before they jump in. And so he made a surprise visit to where these guys were in England. And he also wrote a letter to be read or dispersed. I think he was probably giving them, either reading the letter or giving them kind of the synopsis of it. But the opening paragraph of this letter says, and this is to the whole army, you know, the, all the allied command and everybody. It says, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Right? And he says, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. Right, so when we invaded France or we went into German-occupied France and Europe, the war had been already going on for, you know, the Germans had been fighting for probably six or seven years by now. We had jumped in a little bit later. So they were well dug in. They had everything, all their defenses and everything else. But we had to make this huge push into Europe to make sure that we could defeat the Nazis, Right. But you see, when Eisenhower showed up, he didn't make a big announcement. He just showed up to them. Everybody knew what they had to do. They had already been on alert and trying to leave a few days prior, and they had weather problems. So they were getting ready, then standing down, and getting ready, then standing down, doing kind of the up and down things, uh, waiting and not waiting. Uh, they're waiting to go. But they jumped in, and we, we know how history plays out. Right? We know that it was a heavy toll, but we did get a foothold in Europe and actually start, you know, we defeated them roughly a, a, about less than a year later, right? At least on the European front, a little bit longer than that for the Pacific front. But everybody was waiting for this type of event to happen. And so this, what we're going to read today, this is really, I think, what the apostles were waiting for the Messiah to do when he came the first time, right? He was, they thought he was going to march into the temple Right, on a horse and walk into Jerusalem and take over. Right, that was what they were waiting for. If we think that that's why Judas betrayed him because he found out that Jesus wasn't going to do that. Because his idea of what the Messiah was, was, was what we read in the Psalms and what you can read in other Psalms, that he is going to come as a conquering king. And of course, for us, that means big warfare, big bloodshed, you know, big fight and and. and not only were they going to take over Jerusalem, but in, the mean, in that taking over Jerusalem, they were going to throw out the Romans, which was what they were their oppressors. And so this is what they are waiting for. This is what we are waiting for, where this is his second coming, because we see the beginning part of 19, we saw the celebration, celebration in heaven of the wedding feast. But you notice, though, actually, that the, the lamb wasn't there. It seemed like, other than the verse of seven, it said the lamb has come. But then we see... We're reading in a minute that Jesus shows up on the horse to go fight the battle. 
So it's kind of hard to see if there's other stuff in between there as far as Jesus was at the feast and he goes and gets on a horse and goes and fights or if he just goes and fights before the feast. And so we see this and we're going to read, so we're going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 and they'll be on the, the screen there. So let's go ahead and read this is what John sees. John says, Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written on it that no one knows, no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The enemies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Right, and we'll cover the rest of it. We're going to go all the way today to chapter 20, verse 3, because it all goes together with the beast, the false prophet, and Satan being defeated and bound. So, that, so it makes sense before we actually see the millennial reign in verse, starting in verse 4 of chapter 20. But for now, we're going to be in 19, verse 11, all the way to verse 3 in chapter 20. So here's the main idea. Jesus fights the battles for us, right? That's what he does. He has come and fought the battle already of sin. He has already defeated sin. He's going to come and finally, at the end times, vanquish the enemy. He's going to beat, defeat the enemies for once and for all. And so if you're looking at your outline, we have it broken up. He's entering the battlefield, that's 11 through 14, then he prepares his weapons. This supposed to say prepares his weapons, not perhaps his weapons, I don't know why. Anyway, so prepares his weapons, verses 15 through 18, and then we see the enemies vanquished in chapter, at the end of chapter 19 all the way into verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 3. And so John's viewpoint, right, it turns from the wedding feast to, to heaven opening and seeing a white horse. Right, so he shifts his viewpoint all of a sudden. The heavens opened up and he sees this rider on this white horse. And more importantly, though, than this horse, that there is a rider on the horse. It's not just a horse running free. There's someone on it. And he says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And so this phrase brings us back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus uses the same description of himself when he speaks to the church at Laodicea. And he says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. But see, instead of witnessing here, Jesus is now coming as the faithful and true judge. Right? He's not just witnessing, he's not just seeing what is happening. He's, he has seen it and he's now making pronouncements on what is going on with the world. And so then he's described with his eyes are a fiery flame and many crowns are on his head. And so one commentator says that John observes that his eyes are like the blazing of a fire, and on his head he has many diadems or crowns, right, depending on your translation. Both descriptions are designed to heighten the sense of awesomeness, justice, and irresistible power and authority, right? The eyes like a blazing fire suggest not only judgment, but penetrating knowledge, right? We kind of see when people get angry, or if people are really staring at you, maybe they're angry, maybe they're trying to think about something, right? Their eyes, you can watch their eyes and they're just drilling into you, right? They're staring at you like, how could you? Or maybe they're thinking about something, right? You can see people's emotions through their eyes. And so this fire, right, it suggests that he's judging you, but he also knows 
what he's judging you about. He knows what you did, so that's why he's able to judge you. He's not guessing. He's like, oh, I think you stole the cookies last night. He's like, I know you stole the cookies last night. I saw you, right? I, see, I saw you eat all the cake. Whatever it is, he knows what you did. And so whereas many of the dragon, dragon's minions have appeared, right? The dragon is, the, is Satan, the beast, the, the false prophet. They have crowns. And even the crown has, the lamb, excuse me, has been pictured with a victor's wreath. But now Jesus appears as the warrior judge. And all of this authority is his. So that's what the crowns represent. Right? He is crowned with multiple diadems or crowns. And so Jesus' crowns are permanent and carry real weight, right? But the dragon's crowns are temporary because his rule is temporary, right? He is not, the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are not here forever. You know, we're gonna see that they're beat, they're vanquished, they're beat, and then they're, and Satan is thrown into the, the pit and sealed for a thousand years. So we see that this is, Jesus has the real, he is the true king as we're gonna see in a minute. And so staying in verse 12, the last part is, is this curious phrase because it says he has a name that no one knows. Right? And so this is part of the reason that we call God, God. We don't, we don't call God Yahweh. Right? People really don't refer to even the Jews. They don't even like to say it. They don't even like to write the word God all the way out. They, they usually substitute the O and just put a dash in there. Because that's, his, that's, the, that's the name we kind of refer to, but it's not even really a name. It's... It's a name and a title kind of all at the same time, right? And so in Exodus 3, this comes back to when, when God asked, or Moses asked God's name, he's like, who should I tell them sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. And that's as close as you're going to get, right? Yahweh, the Hebrew, tetra, the, the Hebrew word is about as close as we're going to get to his name, but it's really not his name in a sense. But why is this important, right? Because in the ancient world, and even I think to some extent today, Knowing your name gives me power. When my mom said, Darren Scott will... Whoa. whoa, exactly, whoa. She had power to stop me in my tracks and no matter what it was, <sighs> you know, what? Yes, ma'am, right? Because you already knew at that point you were in trouble. Where I knew I was in trouble. I knew no matter what was going on, I had to obey her, right? She had power. Like, I've done it with my kids. You've probably done it with your kids. At least here, that's how you know, it works with that. And so a relationship is different if you know someone's name versus just calling them sir or ma'am or hey you. Right? Even with the waiter or waitress at a restaurant, even if you say, hey, my name's Kathy or whatever. Okay, hi, Kathy. How are you? Hey, Kathy, can I get something else? Whatever it is, you now have a little bit of a bond with somebody instead of you're just, you're just here serving me. Right? You're a human being. And so I should treat you accordingly, right? But see, God knows our names even when we don't know God's real name. We have no authority over God, but God has full authority over us. He has full authority over the world. And so no matter how much we learn about God, there's this huge unknowable quality to him. We are never going to know, at least in our current state, everything that we can about God. It's impossible. Even if you just studied the Bible... Every time I read the stuff, everything in the Bible, I learn something new, even if I read the same passage a hundred times. Because you're paying attention to something because, okay, I learned, I learned this piece, so let me learn this piece, right? You're going down, you're doing these things. But although God is the unknowable one, he makes himself known as both judge and savior. 
And so Martin Luther, the great reformer, and as well as Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, he called, they called attention to the hiddenness or unknowability of God, even though he has full knowledge of you and me and everyone else. And so this gives him the ability to judge properly. He's not making assumptions about us. He's not just guessing what we did or didn't do. He knows exactly what we did, and that gives him the ability to judge us. So here's the application, though, for this part of it. Even though God is unknowable, we can know the important aspects of God. Right? Even though he's completely unknowable, we can't know everything about him, just like you can't know everything about your spouse or your kids. We know the important pieces of God. So here's what we know, that God is not the Wizard of Oz. He's not hiding behind the walls of the Emerald City or he's not behind the curtain. Right? He, he's accessible. Jesus made him accessible. And so God came to heaven from his throne to live as a man. He walked, he ate, he got tired, he loved, he wept, he bled, he died. So how does the sacrifice actually work? No idea. It's the same kind of questions as why did God create the platypus or how did the butterflies respond to the magnetism of the earth to get from you know, Canada to Mexico every year back and forth? Or how does one person dying fix your sin that's caused by somebody else supposedly? We may never know that really. We may not know how it works, but we do know we have the confidence that it does work. Right? So what do we know? The butterflies fly back and forth every year. The, pat the platypus is alive and well. Right? But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging. He is sitting on the throne now. Right? And this is Ascension Week. I think we mentioned it on Thursday at the Bible study. This is Ascension Week. So this is the 40 days after Easter. So this is when Jesus left earth and went back to heaven. And when the apostles were standing there gaping at the sky, like, wow, where'd he go? Somebody came up and said, why are you looking at him like that? He's going to come back. He's going to come back the same way he went. You see him in the sky. But Jesus is at God's right hand. And if you gave your life to Christ and professed that he is Lord over your life, then you are saved. Right? That is our assurance. We, we, we can know that. We do, it's not just a guess. Like, it's not a, I hope I'm saved. You know, I hope I'm saved. I'm pretty sure I am, but I'm not really sure. One more bad deed and I might get kicked off the truck. I don't know, right? No, you're saved. You're done. You're in there. You can know that. That's our, you know, as Baptists, we kind of shorthand it and call it the once saved, always saved. And it's, it's not a great phrase, but it, it does the job. Yeah, but we have our assurance of our salvation, right? That is what it actually is. That's what it's called. And you will be one of the people that's seated at the wedding feast at the beginning of chapter 19. So we're moving on. So we see him. We have this description of the rider, right? Sort of like you can picture the same thing. If the, the picture I showed you of General Eisenhower, that, you know, that would be kind of Jesus standing there talking to everybody else. And so we see what he's going to do next in verses 15 through 18. And so Jesus is sitting on his horse in front of all his army. And he draws a sword, but it, it doesn't come from a scabbard or a waist, right? He doesn't pull it this way or he, pull it, he doesn't pull it this way. It comes from his mouth. And so this may seem weird if you're, if, you're very, if you're reading it very literally and saying, well, he just pulled the sword like a sword swallower, like a circus act, out of his mouth. It doesn't really work, right? This is, this is some symbolism here. And so there is no actual need for this entourage, right? He doesn't need the army behind him. He doesn't need it. Just unlike Eisenhower, who needed the 
the multitude of people in the army to defeat the Nazis. He couldn't just go do it himself. Jesus is not requiring help. Right? Because the word of God and his, his word, right? he is the word of God, proves all that is necessary. So out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike the nations. So again, if he's pulling a sword out of his mouth, that seems weird to us. And so this could be the case so because God's word was so powerful enough it created the cosmos, right? He spoke and things came into being. The word of God, he spoke, it became. And so that is all, one commentator says, that is all that is needed to strike down the nations who rise against him. Right? Words to destroy, words to build. And so we see the, how powerful his word is. It's, 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 not just, it's not a literal sword that he has to go hack down everything. He actually just speaks things into, into, uh, into existence. And additionally, he's going to rule, and this is a little bit of foreshadowing, for, for, the, for the next part of it in chapter 20, but he rules the nations with an iron scepter. And so interesting enough, though, I found out last night that Gregory Beale in his commentary says that the sharp sword in the rider's mouth comes from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2, where Isaiah says of God's servant, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And here Isaiah's prophecy is reaffirmed and Jesus is identified implicitly as the servant Israel. And so we have all these Old Testament allusions and Old Testament confirmations that, yes, he's the Messiah. He is the one. He is God. And so you have all these just confirmations each time, even in the book of Revelation, say, this is what you were reading about and waiting for. He is now doing this. And so then, after his words destroy, he calls into the birds and has them come and have their own feast, right? That's why I skipped this part of it last week because it was not very it's not a very pleasant picture for Mother's Day. You see a bunch of carrion birds eating dead bodies after a battle, right? So that's why we skate, we saved it for this week. All right, so in the opening lines of the Greek poem the Iliad, Homer says, Sing, O goddess, the anger of Achilles of Peleus, that brought countless ills upon the Achaeans. Many a brave soul did it send hurrying down to Hades Hades. And many a hero did it yield a prey to dogs and vultures. Right? And so if you watch movies like Braveheart or any kind of older, you know, Middle Ages or, or some kind of movies like that where you have these large battles of men just running into each other in a big field, right? You kind of see the aftermath and you have birds picking apart things and doing whatever, you know, taking care of the trash essentially. But these birds of prey... They're there, they're opportunistic, right? They are the trash, trashmen of the, of the natural world, essentially. So vultures, ravens, or some other carrion bird were around, right? So we have this confirmed. He says all the birds or all these birds were coming. And so cultures like the Norse and the Celts, they thought ravens and carrion crows were harbingers of warfare and death. So you see these crows kind of gathering around battlefields before. And we don't have a lot of details about the aftermath of battles in the, in the Bible, we kind of get sparse details, but they do appear. Ravens existed even in the Bible, at least it were translated that way. So ravens brought Elijah food when he was in the wilderness. Noah sent out a raven before he sent out a dove to find land. The raven didn't come back, though, but the dove did. So the raven probably found some food, but just happened to hang out there. And Jesus, in Luke 12, 24, Jesus calls his attention to look at the raven and how God provides for them even. And so he asked, how much more will God provide for his children? 
So these birds existed. They knew how this worked out, right? And this was a culture that was, the Romans were all about war. They were still conquering countries and things at this point in, in, in their history. And they were, continue, they were going to continue on for a couple hundred years. And so in Revelation, Jesus is now providing the birds an endless supply of food. And in turn, they clean up the mess, right? That's how the ecosystem works. But he's also saying that the world is only worth bird food, right? The world who defy, the people who defy God, you will end up becoming bird food. And so do you want to become bird food, right? That's probably not. That's not a pleasant end to my life, I don't think. And so in verses 17 and 18, the angel announces the coming defeat of the beast and his allies with the same language as used in Ezekiel, though. Too, right? Again, we have another Old Testament prophet coming. He says, speak to every kind of bird and assemble. Come to my sacrifice that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. And you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war. And that's from... Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20, right? This is, this is the destruction of Gog and Magog. You've probably heard those, those terms before. Or that's really you know, the end times battles of the, country, the, the, the princes of Gog and Magog and the armies. And so again, we have this other, another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so going back to the knowability, unknowability of God, we see that the words... There are words written on his robe and his thigh or his side. As some of the translations actually say it's not like on his leg, but maybe on his side here. It says the king of kings and lord of lords, right? It's almost like a boxing robe. He sees it right there. He's the Italian stallion, right? Rocky, Rocky, right? So he's the, Jesus is the king of kings. He knows. He, he's the one. And so here's the application. Jesus is the king. And he's returning to reclaim what is rightfully his. Right? He, is ret- he is coming back to take back what is rightfully his. Now, it was given over to a time was to Satan because of sin, but he is now coming back to make everything 100% right. And so, again, this describes exactly what we need to know about who Jesus is and, he, and how he returns and he, how, that he is returning as the king of kings. Right? And not only is he the king of kings, but this phrase, this phrasing identifies him as God to anyone and everyone else who has any kind of questions. And so again, this title, the king of kings, Lord of lords, is taken from Daniel 4, verse 37, where it is a title for God. Right? God is referred to several times in the Old Testament as the king of kings, and it was applied to Christ earlier in chapter 17 in Revelation. Right? But just as the Babylonian king during, the, during Daniel's times wrongly took this title to himself. He thought he was the ruler of the world. Right? So the king of the latter-day Babylon was similarly addressed. He thought, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm running everything. I'm the Antichrist. I'm everything. But God demonstrated his sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar, so Jesus will deal with the latter-day Babylon. Right? This application of his title to Jesus underscores his deity since it was used of God in Daniel 4 again, right? So it's important to stress that, that when people ask, well, how do we know Jesus was God or Jesus never referred to himself as God? Well, this was written in 95 AD or earlier. And here you have direct Old Testament linkings to Jesus being referred to as God in the same titles. So now we see this battle is getting ready to start. And so the enemies are going to be vanquished. And again, if you kind of look and picture it, you have these two armies 
on a field or on some kind of you know plateau or something, and you have them arrayed, and they're waiting to charge at each other. And so John says he saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against the armies of Jesus. And so this is where I have some questions, I guess, of how, how it went down because John skips the play-by-play. He doesn't give us like a battle after action report where these people went this way and these people went that way and they met these other people and they fought. They had cannons. You know, it's a, it's a big play-by-play. But all he does is he skips right to the head of the line and he just goes and kills the beast and the false prophet. Right? They're captured and they're thrown into the lake of fire. The other option may be the fact that just like David and Goliath, right, they had all the, the Philistines and the, and the Israel, Israelites were there fighting, and so Goliath was their champion. So he said, right, bring out your champion, I'll fight him, and whoever wins, wins the battle, right, without having to fight everybody, or having everybody fight. Right? Just have two people, they fight the battle, they fight the fight, whoever wins, wins. This, I'm not sure if it's something like that where Jesus says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll just go fight the beast. He's your champion. We're the two guys, and everybody else can go home. But regardless, we see that the beast is captured, thrown into the lake of fire along with the false prophet. They just skip right to go. Boom, into the fire you go, right? And so then the rest of the world is judged by God's word, right? His sword, it says, and God's army goes after the main culprit, Satan, starting in chapter 20. And so then it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, or the accuser, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. So, for a while, and we're going to get into the millennial reign here shortly, next week. But we see how the, 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 the similarities were. So when Jesus was placed in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. And they sealed it up, said, okay, it's closed. The seal was not so much an impediment to entry as it was a warning based on established authority. Whoever broke the seal would be guilty of rebellion against Rome. Right? So it's like, hey, look, we, we sealed it, we kept it away from you, and you went and broke in. So you went, our, you went against our authority. But now the seal of God is on the abyss, right? So whatever, if you kind of imagine a pit, like he rolled the stone over the pit and they locked it and sealed it. So anybody who, who would maybe try to go break out Satan out of jail, they're going to have to face God's wrath. Now everybody else is destroyed, so there really isn't anybody left, I think, who would do that. But we see this authority that it's a, because God, there is no higher authority than God. Right, this is it. He, he's the one who seals everything. He can lock everything else he wants. And no one is able to lose Satan from that abyss. Nobody's here to rescue him. But here's the application, because we're not there yet. Right? Historically, we're not there yet. This hasn't happened. So here's our application. So until this day comes, until this thing happens, we have to be aware of the spiritual warfare that exists in the world. Right? We need to be aware of what's going on, because... For us, we're on the other side. Of, we're on the pre-side of this history happening. Right? It doesn't have, this is future stuff. So what does that mean? So Satan and his minions are still tormenting or attempting to attack us. Right? That's a very real thing. The Antichrist and the false prophet have not arrived yet. 
But we know there are plenty of false prophets trying to confuse people about who the true Christ is. There were people in Paul's day trying to say that they told the Thessalonians, hey, you guys missed this already. It's already happened. You know, he had to go back. No, we're, we're, nothing's done yet. We're good. Right? Paul says that this world is ruled by unseen powers and principalities. And we have to be alert for these enemy agents, the spies, if you will, trying to get into our lives and throw us off our game. Because their job is to make Christians look as bad as possible to the rest of the world. Right? Now, I'm not casting all the blame on the, on the other powers because we have free will to follow along. And sometimes it's easier to say, I'll go along with you because it's, I'll get money, power, whatever, whatever I think is worth it. So I have no problem throwing away my, my faith. And of course, you have the question if those people are really saved or not or if they just think they are. But your actions, your thoughts, your words, they need to mirror Christ. Right? Your, how you love God, how you love your neighbor, how you love your spouse, how you love your parents, how you love your kids, all those things have to mirror Christ. You have to have a Christ-like love to the people around you. So if someone is watching a scene between you and your spouse, would they say, I think I just saw Jesus there. Like, I think I just witnessed Christ-like love between you and your spouse or whoever, your kids, your sisters, a, a random stranger even. Or would they say Jesus is nowhere to be seen in this relationship? Right? I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're learning in church, but it's certainly anything about Jesus, or at least whatever I understand about Jesus. Now, right, you have to help them make sure they have a good, healthy understanding, a real, true, biblical understanding of Jesus so that's important. That's part where we have to help them, educate them. But people should be able to see, like, yes, you are emulating Christ, like Paul tells us to do. So here's some Bible verses to help you out. I have them on the screen. I think there should be. 1 John 3, 2. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, right now. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so in John, 1 John 2.6, he says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And hopefully we, as we go through different books of the Bible, the letters, the Gospels, right, we get a good understanding. We, we can know by Jesus' actions what he is and who he is. Right? So that helps us out. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So are you shining a big light to people? Or are you shining darkness or a dim light to people and trying to say that it's Jesus because you have a big mirror behind it or something trying to make it brighter than what it is? But for all the times that we fail, right, we, we cannot be like Christ. We cannot be perfect. So I want to make sure we're not chasing this, this dream or something, like that, but, but, but we know that we can't be like him. So when we fail to be like Christ, when we come to this final battle, we know that Christ the conqueror, his death and resurrection has already destroyed the sins. He's already defeated Satan. He's rendered Satan's power useless against us. And that gives us comfort because we know we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to just follow the commandments or follow the rules. 
Because it's not, that's not what it's about. The rules can be a guideline, it's nice, but, but we know Christ has forgiven us. We have been forgiven through his blood, through his sacrifice. And so we are called and we are, we are Christians now. We are sons and daughters of God. And so wrapping it up, Eisenhower, he closed his letter, the encouraging letter. It was only a couple paragraphs. It was very short. He says, the tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. Because <clears throat> I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. And we will accept nothing less than full victory. And that's what this is. Jesus is going to accept nothing but full victory. He, he doesn't, he's not guessing if he's going to win or not. He's not unsure if the day, this day of battle is going to come. He's like, well, I'm not sure if we're going to win. Because part of the reason that Eisenhower visited the 101st Airborne was because they were projecting, the army was projecting that there would be 80% casualties for that, that, that division. You know, so that's a whole lot of people. So he was really distraught about it. He wanted to make sure that you know, he saw these men that he was sending off to their potential death. So he could look them in the eye and say, look, I, I understand what I'm, I'm doing and sending to you, and you understand as well. But Jesus is coming back, and he's going to fight this battle against these ancient foes, right? He doesn't need us, but we are in the army. Because he has the authority and power to destroy or build up with his word, and he is the rightful judge. He is also the savior and a hero. He's the warrior king coming to save his people, to rescue his people and establish his kingdom. And this is good news for us. Because right, we know that we're already in the army of God. We already know this. And so this may seem dismal. This may sound very, man, this is, this is some heavy stuff, right? This is war and destruction. But this is what it is because God cannot stand with sin. He cannot allow it to be here. So he is getting rid of it all. And so as we go out this week, right, think about how we can be more Christ-like. Think about how you can get to know God a little better or, and, and what we know about God. Right, what we already know about him. So as we sing our last few songs, as we are going out to live our lives this week, right, think about this and think about how you can tell people this good news that, that the king will come back at some point. So let's go ahead and stand as we transition and we will sing our last couple songs. <clears throat>